Welcome to MedTech Talk, a weekly sit-down with the innovators, investors, and executives leading the MedTech sector. Now, here's your host, Tom Salemi. Hi, welcome back to the MedTech Talk podcast. I'm your host, Tom Salemi. We're still dusting ourselves off from a very successful MedTech investing conference. Thanks to everyone who participated, attended, or sponsored the event. It really was a stellar success. Today, we're going to uh, take a little different uh, direction in the podcast. We're going to dive deeply into one of our subsectors, ophthalmology. I had a great opportunity to speak with uh, two men who have been covering the ophthalmology and device sectors for many years, uh, Larry Hamovich of Hamovich Medical Technology Consultants and Mike Lockman of uh, Lockman Consulting shared uh, their thoughts about a recent, uh, recent round of ophthalmology conferences, including our own Ophthalmology Innovation Summit. Uh, in the conversation, we hit upon uh, hot areas like MIGs and uh, devices like IOLs and talked specifically about uh, some real uh, promising and exciting companies, including, of course, Glaucos, which uh, filed to go public after we had this conversation. So hope you enjoy this uh, deep dive into ophthalmology. Terrific. Michael Lockman and Larry Hamovich. It's a pleasure to have you both on the podcast today. Thank, thank, thank you, you, Tom. Great to be here. And we were happy to have you both at OIS. I know you you've both have uh, written extensively about OIS in the past. You've uh, worked on a lot of our executive reports. So this is kind of a uh, a, a audio version of a digital report of OIS. And, and I know you both were at Askers and uh, Michael, you were at Avro, and maybe we can hit upon those a bit later. But Let's, uh, let's start with OIS. Uh, we had a, a spotlight on several technologies. Uh, one of them that I found interesting was, uh, was MIGS. Uh, perhaps we can delve into that first. Michael, what was your, your takeaway of that segment of the agenda? Uh, well, thanks, Tom. And, and, you know, I've been following MIGS for, you know, probably close to 10 years now. And, and it's really an exciting time in, in this field, you know, given the, the approval about two and a half years ago, coming up on three years ago for the Glaucos eye stent. Um, and, you know, Glaucos is nearly three years now into, into what is, by all accounts, a very successful product launch. Uh, they, they did over $20 million uh, in sales in 2013. They doubled that to over $40 million last year. And by all accounts, the growth has continued into um, this year as well. Um, you know, I think looking, looking over the next two to three years, you know, the, the growth – in, in the MIGS uh, sector will, will continue to come from additional penetration, uh, new surgeons adopting uh, the, the original eye stent, uh, more surgeons getting on board with the technology. And then, you know, beyond that, you know, I think the growth beyond the next couple of years could come from a few different areas, you know, possibly broadening indications and reimbursement uh, beyond just cataract patients with glaucoma to you know, possibly include uh, primary patients, uh, patients with glaucoma, or even including ocular hypertension that aren't necessarily uh, having cataract surgery, but just maybe, maybe phacic or pseudophagic patients with glaucoma or ocular hypertension. Um, and, then, and then approval and reimbursement for multiple stents, uh, I think, could be a growth driver in the future, um, given that I, I think it's, it's pretty much become conventional wisdom now that, that you know, the, the benefit that you get in terms of IOP lowering with multiple stents exceeds what you get from one stent. And then obviously there's, there are a number of products which we can talk about over the next few minutes here in the pipeline from Glaucos and at least four other companies that, that really promise to, to broaden the product offerings in this field. 
Great, Larry. What was your what was your uh, take of the of the segment? Well, like Michael, I I am very enthused about what I'm seeing. Uh, the tremendous performance of um, Glaucose since they received FDA approval has been heartening. Um, you know, as Michael said, twenty I think it was twenty one million dollars in sales in twenty thirteen. I think it was something like forty five or forty six million in in twenty fourteen and. I think by all accounts we're hearing they could get up to 70 or 75 million for this year. So it's it's very exciting. And as Michael said, uh, not only is is glaucose performing very well, but now you now you have some very clear visibility on newer players coming into the market. Uh first of all, uh we just saw last week the pivotal results, admittedly the top line pivotal results for Transcend Medical, um, which will be a direct competitor to Glaucose. The results look very favorable. We probably won't get the full data set for several more months, but certainly the first look was very favorable. The likelihood is that Transcend would be approved into the F- into the U.S. market late in 2016 or sometime in the first half of 2017. And that would mean a head-to-head competitor to Glaucos. We also are aware that Aquasis, uh, which is a different approach and a different indication, uh, but is going through a 510K route, could be on the market in approximately the same time. We know that Ivantis has already completed its pivotal trial and now is in a one- or two-year waiting period before they can file their PMA. And then last, but certainly not least, is in focus, which has a unique device, which looks like it'll be slotted for moderate to perhaps severe glaucoma. And that will probably get approved maybe 2018 or 2019. So it's a very dynamic space. The growth already is tremendous. And with all these new competitors coming on the market, I think the market's going to grow dramatically. I don't expect that the... the um, the debut of Transcend to necessarily just take market share from Glaucos, but rather I think uh, that the market itself will expand. So it's it's a very exciting, um, very exciting um, market opportunity for these players and exciting for ophthalmology. Yeah, I was wondering about that, Mike. Without picking winners necessarily, unless you want to, uh, is there going to be room in this market for uh, all of these uh, devices coming forward? We're going to see a, an onslaught of approvals. It sounds like over the next couple of years. Uh, right, and obviously that will will shake out once all these products are on the market. I think one of the things that that I think is very encouraging about about the product pipeline across multiple companies in the MIG space is that these products reside along different points of the treatment continuum. So, for example, um, you know we've got the trabecular uh, bypass dents like the like the eye stent from from Glaucose, which which drains fluid into the uh, into Schlund's canal across the trabecular meshwork. Um, Glaucose itself has a second generation product, uh, sometimes called the G2, sometimes called the Ice Dent Inject, uh, which which is a preloaded device that that in, involves uh, the placement of two even smaller stents. Um, directly through the meshwork into the canal. Uh, I think the advantage there is, is potentially 
ease of use and simplified technique, which could go a long way to bringing additional surgeons into the field, uh, maybe surgeons that, that are a bit intimidated by the, the, the insertion technique involved in ice dent. And then Ivantis also resides at that, at that sort of mild to moderate uh, end of the continuum with a product that, that stands into Schlem's canal. In the case of the, the Ivantis hydrus, it's, it's a product that stents open several clock hours of the canal. So the, there's the potential for greater IOP reduction. Then on the, on the, really on the other end of the treatment spectrum, uh, when you look at, at patients with more advanced disease and possibly refractory disease, that's where you have the Aquasis Zen implant and the InFocus micro uh, shunt, which, which stent not into the Schlem's canal, but into the subconjunctival space. Which is which is sort of the gold standard drainage pathway that that glaucoma specialists have have used for years with the trabeculectomy procedure, and with tube shunts. So, so those those two products offer the, the potential for even greater IOP reduction uh, in a procedure that that you know may or may not over time turn out to be as appealing to the cataract surgeons that are that are adopting uh, the eye stent in increasing numbers. And then sort of between those two extremes you have the suprachoroidal stents. That's the, the transcend bypass, And then Glaucose has their G3 product or the, the ice stent supra, which, which drain fluid into that suprachoroidal space. And, you know, to me, that one is a little bit less clear uh, where that one is going to end up in terms of adoption. I think it's got great potential because by all accounts, the, the insertion technique is even simpler than for the first generation trabecular bypass stents. I think what will really determine the the relative success of those suprachoroidal stents is is where they fall on that safety and efficacy continuum. So, for example, if if they are able to deliver IOP reduction that that exceeds what you get with the trabecular bypass stents, uh, with a procedure that that rivals that high that high safety bar that's been set by the original eye stent, then I think those products will do very well. Uh, on the other hand, if those suprachoroidal stents don't deliver meaningfully more pressure reduction and there's the perception of re- or the reality of higher risk, then they may, they may not find as great a, a spot in that continuum. But, but, you know, long answer to a short question, I think there's a, there's, there are a number of products across the continuum. And then over time, there's the potential that as these subconjunctival stents like the Zen and the InFocus, if those prove to be really safe and really easy to do, then over time, I think those, those types of products could move up in the continuum and be used earlier in the disease cycle, just as, you know, if, if the trabecular bypass stents turn out to be, good, you know, even more effective than we've seen so far with respect to IOP reduction uh, with multiple stents, for example, then, then those uh, those sort of first generation products could could move, work their way down the treatment continuum and be used in in more severe cases. Uh, we're getting, one more thought about Megs Larry. I know you you had some uh, something to add as well. Right, and, and, and in addition to everything that Michael said, which I you know probably agree with ninety nine point nine percent of. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to add this. Um, there are about 75,000 trabeculectomies done annually in the U.S., somewhere between 75 and 100,000. There are believed to be another, I don't know, 25 or 50,000 shunts that are placed 
So call that a market of maybe 125 to 150,000. Those are procedures done on patients that are done toward the end of the continuum of care. And I certainly believe that in focus and perhaps the Aquasis product could fit very, very nicely there. And that would expand the MIGS market, not take away share from the other competitors, because in effect, broaden, they would broaden the, um, the market in, in the, you know, let's say moderate to severe area. So that's, that's the other thing I just wanted to add was, was that. Great. Michael, are you disappointed that Larry doesn't agree with you 100%, only 99.99%? <laughs> you know what? It's something for me to work on. <laughs> Keep trying. I set a high bar, Tom. I set a high bar with Michael. I don't want to make him too, feel too, too good. That's right. Keep him in his place. One <laughs> yeah. um, of the big, uh, uh, I think, bits of news coming out of Askers, and we actually had a nice interview with Jim Mazo here a couple of weeks ago, was the camera inlay. Uh, the fact that uh, that uh, his folks had two different booths set up in case they got the FDA approval. In case right. they didn't, they were, they were fortunate to have to use the one that they wanted to use, which was they had FDA approval. What kind of uh, right. what kind of response did you did you see at Askers? Uh, what what kind of reception did uh, did the approval get? Well, personally, I'll speak for myself personally, Tom. I was very very happy about that. Um, happy because anytime you get a PMA product through the FDA. Uh, is, is encouraging and good news. Happy because it took less than one year from the time they had their panel meeting on June 9th of 2014. Happy because the FDA was, was considerate enough to approve it the day before ASCRIS began. And happy because it marks the, the beginning of a new, a new product category for us in ophthalmology, which is corneal inlays. So it was very, very good news, and, and all of us were, were extremely happy about it. Um, there are other new, there are other products coming behind Camry, and I'm sure both of those companies were very, very pleased to see that the cam, camera had gotten approved. So very good news for the space, very good news for patients, very good news for doctors. And uh, you know, it made it made for a happy Ascaris. I think it was a, it was a really a significant, significant event. Yeah, the timing was great, Michael. What do you think? Well, I, I would I would concur uh, probably at least ninety nine point nine percent with, with uh, what, what Larry said. Um, very important news for the for the segment. Uh, interestingly, the folks from AccuFocus spoke very highly uh, of the FDA's level of engagement and responsiveness during the review process. Uh, and, and I'm sure the company was very pleased uh, with the approval. It kind of, uh, Larry and I are old enough to remember when it was, it was not at all uncommon for companies to receive key approvals from the FDA right before big conferences. And over the last few years, that whole phenomenon has largely gone away. It's just not something we, we see very much anymore. Um, so, so, you know, I think it, it really made for a very positive backdrop. Um, for the meeting, you know, I, I think this this category of corneal inlays is an important one. Uh, you know, presbyopia is is uh, you know the numbers get staggering as soon as you start talking about presbyopia. You know, there's about 90 million presbyopes by my count in the U.S. And then if you look at at the group that's that's really indicated for this initial this initial approval, it's about a third of those 90 million or close to 30 million or so that are emetropic meaning that they've got, you know, less than one diopter of refractive error, uh, so fall within that, that, that you know, labeled indication for, for the camera inlay. 
uh, and and are also in that target age range of say 45 to 64, that pre-cataract age group. And you know, for that group, I think you know inlays hold a lot of promise because uh, you know, unlike presbylasic, which is which is a procedure that has been around for a while, I don't think is really being pursued in the U.S. at this point from a regulatory standpoint standpoint by anyone. It was a pretty major development project several years ago uh, by AMO Visex. Um, but unlike presbylasic, it's an additive procedure. Uh, tissue isn't removed, but something is added. And and one of the advantages of corneal inlays is that in the future, if a patient's needs or preferences change, or if a patient gets a cataract and wants to to replace their, their corneal inlay with the latest uh, technology in presbyopia correcting IOLs, uh, the inlay can be removed. And it's been shown that that the the, the vision goes back to to what it was preoperatively. Um, so, so uh, you know, tremendous opportunity. I, I think looking looking into the future, you know, the market could expand uh, to include patients who've had prior LASIK surgery or prior cataract surgery. And you know, when you add it all up, you know, I, I think uh, you know to call this a billion dollar global market opportunity is is not unrealistic. Yeah, Jim had offered to. I, I fit right into that sweet spot. I could use one of the cameras, and Jim offered to have one uh, put on to me while I'm performing a podcast and he didn't mention it being free so i don't know if he was going to give it to me for free but uh, <laughs> but at least the opening is there for me to have the procedure done and michael one, one other i know we'd like to hit upon is the uh, extended depth of focus lenses can you uh bring us up to speed on that um sure you know i, I think i think the, the this new category of extended depth of focus or extended extended range of vision iols is uh, certainly the the highest profile new category of premium iols um, this this category was introduced in a pretty big way at the ESCRS meeting uh, six months ago in London, uh, and and we're also highlighted quite extensively at this year's Ascaris. Um, if you look at, at at these lenses and what you know where they're positioned, I think they represent an attempt to sort of bridge the gap between the high optical quality and excellent distance vision that are provided by standard monofocal uh, and aspheric monofocal IOLs. As well as the accommodating IOLs, so these these new IOLs um, represent uh, an attempt to sort of bridge the gap between the the you know high visual quality and excellent distance vision provided by um, standard IOLs and accommodating IOLs such as the crystal lens, um, while also providing spectacle spectacle independence that we're used to seeing with multifocal IOLs. Um, so rather than than providing two separate focal points, a distance focal point and a near focal point. Uh, these lenses are designed, designed to provide more of a continuous, uninterrupted range of functional vision from distance to intermediate and possibly with, with some near vision as well without creating those two focal points. And by, by doing that, uh, the, the goal is to reduce the incidence and severity of visual side effects that plague the multifocal IOLs, uh, such as glare and halos and, and somewhat compromised quality of distance vision. Uh, and, and the hope is that, that by eliminating some of these drawbacks of the current multifocal IOLs, that, that you know, these lenses could, could, could actually grow the category by bringing new surgeons into the market that have been reluctant to use presbyopia-correcting IOLs and, and address more patients, address some of the patients who, who surgeons may have been reluctant to treat with, with the current uh, crop of multifocal IOLs. Michael, are there any uh, products within this space we should be looking at? 
Well, I think the two leading uh, candidates in this new category are the, the Symphony IOL from Abbott Medical Optics and the IC8 Small Aperture IOL from AccuFocus. Uh, the AMO Symphony was launched in Europe last year. Um, if you look at this lens, it has a very similar appearance to a standard multifocal IOL. Um, it features a diffractive optical design with a pattern of concentric circles on the lens. However, when you compare it to a standard multifocal IOL, um, such as the Technus multifocal, the size and shape of the rings have been redesigned. And you know, unlike uh, a, a typical multifocal, Symphony does, does not create a second focal point. Instead, the lens elongates um, the, the focus of the eye, resulting in an extended range of vision. And in addition, in order to address loss of contrast sensitivity that typically occurs with multifocal optics, uh, this lens also corrects chromatic aberration and enhances contrast. Um, on the other hand, if you look at the, the IC8 small aperture IOL from AccuFocus, it, it really utilizes that same small aperture optical concept that's, that, uh, that is behind the camera inlay, except in an intraocular format. The Symphony IOL has been, has been um, launched to some degree in Europe. Uh, AccuFocus is currently up, uh, undertaking a more limited commercial valuation. Um, in Europe this year uh, with a larger controlled launch uh, possible later this year in Europe and possibly some other uh, regions of the world. Uh, AccuFocus is not currently planning to begin a U.S. clinical study of the IC8 lens this year, um, but uh, AMO has begun a U.S. clinical study of the Symphony IOL. Wow, interesting point. And Larry, we'll, uh, we'll give you the final word. What were some of the other areas uh, that uh, piqued your interest at this, the recent uh, span of conferences? The last two or three asterisks, we've seen more and more data coming out of Calhoun Vision. They have a unique product that is a self-adjusting IOL. Uh, I shouldn't say self-adjusting, but adjusts once it's implanted in the eye with the use of a, an ultraviolet light. The doctors I've been talking to over the last two or three years who are involved in their clinical trials are extremely, extremely enthused and excited about this, this new product. It is CE marked, but they're not doing that much commercialization in Europe. They, they have now completed their pivotal trial. It, it included, I believe, over 600 eyes. 400 of which were treated with the, the Calhoun lens and 200 which were treated with standard IOLs. We don't have the data set yet. The FDA is requiring a one-year follow-up. But the, the anecdotal data and the limited data we've heard in smaller, smaller numbers is extremely, extremely good. Something like over 80% of the patients getting 20-20 um, getting, um, or better and I believe something like 35 to 40% of the patients getting 2015 or better. So it, it's really so far providing very, very encouraging results. Um, we will be very interested in seeing the full data set when the pivotal trial data is released. But I, I am very encouraged by what I'm seeing and hearing from Calhoun. Terrific. And I might add, Tom, this company's been at at this for a long, long time. It's been a very challenging technical project, um, and uh, they finally seem to have broken through now and are on the verge of something very, very exciting. And I know from our conversation earlier, too, you had some, some thoughts about Zepto, which presented at OIS. Yes. This small private company called Minosys, 
presented, and I had actually heard about the product, Tom, uh, at the AAO in 2014. I know the I know the CEO. He was CEO of another ophthalmic company. So he and I talked at the AAO. I thought it was very interesting then. I did a little bit of due diligence with just a few people I knew. Say, hey, what do you think about this? And the feedback was very, very positive. Uh, the product will resolve a challenge for all cataract surgeons um, in a very simple and quite inexpensive way. That challenge is making a perfect capsulotomy uh, or a perfect capsularexis every single time. And if you and if you try to do that manually, it's like asking someone to keep drawing perfect circles. And none of us can draw perfect circles. And certainly no one can draw a perfect circle within the eye when you're trying to remove the, the capsules. So this device is a very simple, disposable device that promises to do that. And I think it has, a, it has an enormous market potential once it gets FDA approved, which I'm expecting will be probably by the end of this year. Anecdotally, Tom, um, one of the reasons that femtosecond lasers, which cost about $400,000 approximately, have been so successful is mainly because it enables the, the surgeon to perform that perfect capsulotomy that I just described. But in addition to the $400,000 capital equipment, they're paying uh, a per-procedure fee or per-click fee to the manufacturers of 350 or $400 per click. So it's very, very expensive. So Zepto promises to be a very elegant and simple solution to a problem that has plagued the cataract surgeon ever since cataract surgery began. So I think that was, that, that's another great example of very creative innovation in the field of ophthalmology. Terrific. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I, I would very much like to repeat this. Thank you both for taking some time today. Good to Thank talk you, Tom. That was a great conversation. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Larry. We'll definitely do this again, and we'll do have other conversations with, uh, with other noted uh, experts covering other sectors within medical devices. Thank you all again for your participation in the MedTech Investing Conference. Uh, to find out more information about next year's conference or to follow our content from the conference, go to medtechconference.com and join us, of course, at our next MedTech Talk podcast.